So when we, uh, when we started out on this journey through the Psalms, almost 15 months ago now, I told you, uh, right from the beginning, right from the earliest days, that uh, the Christian church has regarded this Hebrew songbook not just as uh, sacred literature, but as a source of relevant, authoritative instruction for every question and care of the church that arises. Uh, like, for instance, the fourth century Bishop Athanasius reportedly said of it, while most scriptures speak to us, the Psalms speak for us. Uh, centuries later, John Calvin described the Psalter as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, and he said, for there is not an emotion of which anyone is conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Uh, and, and more contemporary Bible teacher, uh, Thomas Long observed that the Psalms operate at the level of the sacred imagination, often swiveling the universe on the hinges of a single image. And, you know, I think all three of those remarks really perfectly fit our psalm text for today, Psalm 64, as we come to another of those psalms that uh, scholars label the imprecatory psalms. And, and we kind of broke ground on them back when we looked at Psalm 58. Uh, but just to jog your memory, an imprecatory psalm is one that invokes judgment uh, or calamity or calls down curses even on uh, someone's enemies or on the enemies of the people of God. Uh, and today, as you're, you're going to see, this one that we're going to read has some fairly tough language in it. Uh, but that's, that's the theme, the hinge, if you will, that I want to employ today uh, and the image that I want you to focus on because the idea uh, of biblical violence is actually one that keeps coming up uh, over and over again in the modern-day uh, Christian higher criticism. And the question of, uh, did God somehow change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Uh, or maybe to put it more directly, did he somehow evolve from a harsh and violent deity under the old covenant into a loving and compassionate savior in the new. And I want you to be kind of mulling that over in your brain as you listen uh, to our text today, which is coming to us from Psalm 64. This is the next in our series, looking through the Psalms. And it's superscribed to the choir master, a Psalm of David. And he writes, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongue like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting them from ambush at the blameless, shooting at them suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. And then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exalt. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And you know, as I, as I said in the, the opening today, when it comes to the critics of our Christian faith, there seems to be a culture now that's questioning not only whether God actually exists, but also questioning the character and the nature of the God who's described and revealed in the Bible. And so if you read most of the new really militant atheist authors who uh, over the last several years have made the New York Times bestsellers list, part of their complaint 
And their argument isn't so much anymore that there is no God, but that the God that is revealed in the Christian faith is a God who is somehow not worthy to be followed. I, I know I told you before in his best-selling book, The God Delusion, the atheist Richard Dawkins refers to the God of the Old Testament as a vindictive racial ethnic cleanser. The journalist Christopher Hitchens complained that the God of the Old Testament uh, somehow has written out a, a warrant for indiscriminate massacre of peoples. And, and other critics of, of the faith have leveled similar charges, uh, accusing the Lord uh, of, in their words, capricious and arbitrary crimes against humanity. And, and you know, the church as a whole has gotten a lot of flack from the critics of our faith about, over in their words, uh, the bloodthirsty stories of the Old Testament. And they ask things like, why did God command the killing of entire nations in the Old Testament? Why so many calls for war? Why so many demands for seemingly endless sacrifices? But, you know, since those things are true, our critics raise some valid questions that we have to be prepared to answer. But here's the part I didn't get into with you the last time that we kind of waded through these deep imprecatory psalms. Uh, and that's increasingly and sadly because of a lack of proper preaching in our churches and an abandonment of sound biblical education. The problem of the violence in the Old Testament is actually being more acutely felt within our own Christian community. Uh, even at its highest levels when men like Andy Stanley, uh, who is Charles Stanley's son, profess to have a problem with the Old Testament. If you haven't heard this before, uh, Andy, who's the senior pastor of Atlanta's North Point Community Church, uh, and one of 12 men listed on Baylor University's most effective preachers, uh, he kind of jumped into this debate when he told Christians that we need to, in his words, unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Uh, because in his words, the Old Testament makes it difficult for people to have faith in God, that there's not much evidence of God's grace in it, and unbelievably, he said, the Old Testament isn't about Jesus. Now, I'm no Charles Stanley, who I think is fantastic and still fantastic. Uh, I'm no Andy Stanley. In fact, if anything, I'm closer to Stan Laurel. But <laughs> the, there's a whole lot wrong with what Andy Stanley had to say. Uh, so much wrong with those statements, we can't even get into all of them today. Uh, but it leaves us with a question on the table, doesn't it? It leaves us with the question and the problem of the supposed differences between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. A question which, honestly, is probably far subtler and more complex than it appears at first glance. Because to say that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and punishing, while the God of the New Testament is loving and kind, is really a gross oversimplification. And so I want us to, the, the brief time that we have together, is to consider that tension of ideas between, between the way that God is portrayed in the Old Testament and the way he's portrayed in the New and what I'm going to show you is the simple fact of the matter is that if you read the Bible, you cannot possibly come to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are somehow different. Because if you read the Bible, you will read about God's love and mercy and judgment in the Old Testament, and you will read about God's love and mercy and justice in the New Testament because it's exactly the same God. And I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want to give you an example. I'm going to give you an example from one of the, uh, the oldest and smallest books of the Old Testament, the book of Jonah. 
uh, possibly even one of the most ancient pieces of Holy Spirit-inspired literature that we have. Uh, and in the book, if you remember the story, remember the prophet Jonah receives this calling from God to preach repentance to the people of Nineveh. You remember the story, right? And to lead the inhabitants of that city to the Lord. But there's just a problem with that because Jonah hates the Ninevites. Jonah hates the people of Nineveh. He hates all of them. And he doesn't want to go. And so instead of obeying God and going straight to Nineveh, he goes to the port of Joppa, uh, gets on board a ship to the city of Tarsus, which is in exactly a straight line in the opposite direction from where God wanted him to go. And you guys know the rest of the story, right? After he boards the ship, uh, there's this great storm. During the storm, the ship's crew figure out it's Jonah's fault because he's the one that's running from God, and so they throw him into the sea. Now, as soon as Jonah's tossed into the water, the storm broke, but the sailors couldn't see him anymore because he'd been swallowed by a great fish where he stayed for three days and three nights until God caused the fish to, in the very graphic language of the Old Testament, to vomit Jonah out onto a beach. Uh, and then, oddly enough, uh, you know, Jonah decided he'd go to Nineveh after all. <laughs> but he still wasn't happy about it. <clears throat> he still hated the Ninevites with a passion. In fact, he would like nothing better than to see all of them wiped off the face of the earth for the cruel way in which they had treated God's people in the past. Uh, and I tell you that because, you know, for us, when you and I consider God's so-called violent nature and hand of judgment in the Bible, we have to be very careful that we don't let ourselves get confused because like Jonah, very often we human beings are looking for uh, is not true justice but the idea of revenge. Very often what you and I look for is not true justice, but revenge. And those are definitely not the same thing, and I'll give you a quick example. Let me just take a quick poll. How many of you guys uh, or ladies have watched the Die Hard movies? Like, don't, don't be shy, raise your hand. Oh, come on, get them up there. Okay. Shame on you. What are you doing watching that filth? Marshall, I'm surprised at you. I'll be taking confessions after the service. Now, now I, I only watched all of those movies because Vicky took me to them when we were first dating. And, and you know that she's always been a very bad influence on me. But, but anyway, if you've seen those movies or, or others like them, as you get to the end, what do you want to see happen to the bad guy? Okay. Well, let, let me put it like this. Do you want to see the bad guy catch a cold that develops into a chronic illness and then see them spend their remaining years in a cushy hospital bed as the credits roll, right? No, no, if we're honest, most of us want to see that villain die, right? And not just die, but die violently with the full knowledge that all of their evil schemes have been for naught, right? Like, like if you remember the end of the first Die Hard movie where the, the German arch-villain Hans Gruber, and I don't know why the villains are always German, on that, right? Why are the villains always German? Right? But he's standing on top of a skyscraper with the lead actress, right, that he's kidnapped, and he puts the pistol to her head. Remember, he tells Bruce Willis to surrender his machine gun, and Bruce fakes like he's going to do it, but then he pulls his own pistol and shoots Gruber in the shoulder. And remember, he staggers backwards from the gunshot wound and crashes through a window. Now, now I'm no medical expert, but I'm fairly certain that after being shot and crashing through a window would be enough to kill most men. But, but is he dead? No. Uh, no, he is not. No. 
Yeah. No, he's not dead. He has somehow, he has some, believe this is unbelievable, he somehow managed to grab the watch band of the heroine and he hangs on desperately to avoid falling completely off the building. Remember, Bruce Willis rushes to, to help the woman who's also now just inches away from falling to her death and he's desperately trying to unclasp her watch as Gruber slowly levels his gun at Bruce Willis with the intention of ending his life. But just at the last second, luckily the watch unclasps and we look on as the camera tracks the shocked expression of the villain's face as he plummets to his death on the pavement below, right? Now, I can remember when we saw that in the movie theater for the first time that the whole audience practically rose to their feet with a thunder of applause. Right? And you know, when many of us imagine what it looks like to execute justice, what often is at the bottom of our hearts is not a wrestle and a cry for justice. Oftentimes what we're looking for is some sort of revenge. And as I have said, those things are definitely radically different. You see, the trouble is for Jonah, he doesn't want justice for the people of Nineveh. He wants them to die. He wants them to die in the words of Psalm 64 today and for God to shoot his arrows at them so they're wounded suddenly and so that all who see them will wag their heads. But as I said, Jonah grudgingly he, he does go to Nineveh. He goes to the city. He preaches his sermon. Uh, and are you ready for it? Because I actually, I actually intend to read you his whole sermon today, so I hope you guys are prepared for it. Are you ready? You're going to get to just sit back and relax, okay? Jonah chapter 3, verse 4 says, On the day Jonah entered the city of Nineveh, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Amen. Go in peace. Right? That was the whole thing. That was his whole sermon. And guess what? It turned out to be the greatest evangelistic sermon that was ever preached in the history of the world because the Bible says in the very next verse, the people of Nineveh believed God's message. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast. And they put on burlap to show their sorrow. So the whole city repented, right? Every man and woman and child turned to God. Jonah sees one of the greatest pagan cities of the ancient world go through an enormous spiritual revival. And what does he do? Uh, does he set up a Billy Graham-style crusade and go town to town? Does he plant churches all over Assyria? Does he even get down on his knees and thank God? No. He gets depressed. He is completely, totally, and utterly depressed. And this is how Jonah chapter 4 starts. It says, This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. In fact, the Hebrew here is a little more graphic. It says, Jonah burned with anger. And so this guy sees revival break out that makes him not only sick to his stomach, but hot under the collar. And so he complained to the Lord about it. And he said, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarsus. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry. And filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive. And here's what I want you to see. See, Jonah's complaint about the character and the nature of God in the Old Testament is that he's too kind. He's too gracious. He's too loving. And he likes to have compassion on people. That's why Jonah said he didn't want to go to Nineveh because God seems to be in the habit of forgiving people in the Old Testament and giving them the opportunity 
to repent. But remember, Jonah didn't want that. Jonah wanted them to die. And he wanted them to die painfully like the villains in our modern-day cinema. So, so right here in just a simple reading of the Old Testament, uh, in just one tiny little four-chapter book, the idea that God and the character of God is somehow different or incompatible with the New Testament is just fundamentally wrong. And that we really can put that whole issue neatly to bed and overcome it by what one commentator said uh, was the very sophisticated mechanism of reading. Right? The very sophisticated mechanism of reading. You've got to read God's Word, and I pray you do that. But you know, it still leaves us with a deeper and possibly more nagging issue. The deeper issue is this. If this God is so loving and so kind and so compassionate and so gentle, uh, one who delights in mercy and, and so on, then why do we still find tough passages of judgment like we find in places like today's Psalm 64 uh, and in all the other imprecatory psalms that we're going to bump into before we get done on this journey? Uh, and I want you to really hear me and I want you to think about this for a minute because the reason we may be wrestling with all of this, if you are, is not because we've spent too little time thinking about the issues of, of judgment, but rather too little time thinking about the issue of genuine love, right? The nature of genuine love. Because you see, true love doesn't exist in the absence of judgment. It only exists in the presence of it. Whether it's God's love for us, or, or, or us for each other, or even for ourselves... True love only exists in the presence of judgment. And I'll tell you why. Because the words, I love you, are only meaningful when the person who says them truly knows you. Right? But you see, most folks are so desperate to know love in our lives that we go around projecting images of ourselves that are all prettied up. And the trouble with that is people very often fall in love with the image and not with the real you. And you see that all the time, like that's just commonplace in the gossip magazines, where we see the very powerful, the very rich, the very beautiful and famous people find it so difficult to find true love because people fall in love with the image without first understanding the reality of that person. Uh, and, and just to maybe flesh this out and bring it home a little more, you know, if you think about yourself today, I can promise you if you're sitting here this morning, and, and maybe you're one of the most popular people in your park, if nobody truly knows you, if nobody knows your weaknesses and your shortcomings and your failings, then you are very likely one of the loneliest people in the world right now. But I can also tell you if there's even a few people around you, whether it's a spouse or, or kids or a best friend, who knows you, the real you, right, with all your weaknesses and your shortcomings and your failings, uh, all of that, and they still love you, those are some of the best and most meaningful relationships that you can have. And brothers and sisters, that is precisely the way in which God loves humanity. Right? God sees you exactly as you are. He doesn't have a false image of you. He doesn't have a wrong idea of you. He knows you through and through exactly the way you are. And there's nothing hidden from him. And here's the mystery. He loves you and me anyway. And the Bible says that he has compassion on all that he has made. And when we come to that word compassion, some of you college folks that still remember your ancient language studies, remember that word compassion is actually from ecclesiastical Latin. It means not simply that you care about something deeply, but that you make a moral judgment about something that moves you 
to the depths of your soul and to do something about it. Like, in other words, you have compassion in the face of poverty when you see a, a homeless person sitting in front of a gas station. And, and when you see that, you make a moral judgment and you look at that and you say, that is wrong. But you're not happy to just think that thought and move on, otherwise you're just moralizing. You see that person and it moves you to the pit of your stomach and, and you turn around and you go back into that gas station and you expend your hard-earned time and money to buy that person some food and a drink and then you give it to them, right? That's, that's real compassion. You see, brothers and sisters, though, that's what God does for us. Right? We have a gracious and compassionate God who looks at your heart and he looks at my heart and he sees all the sin that's in there and he makes a moral judgment and he says, that is wrong. But then he's so moved to the depths of his being that he does something about it. That's his nature. But Jonah didn't want to see that, did he? You see, like you and I sometimes, he just wanted to look at the, the Ninevites and consult their violence and their moral failings and their sins. And he didn't want anything to do with them and he didn't want God to like them or to love them or to forgive them either. But you know what? He was terrified that God would. Because that's just what God is like. That's what God is like in the Old Testament, and that's what God is like in the New Testament. And the whole of that pointing to one truth, to one place, the only place where God's perfect righteousness and his relentless love for us meet and are reconciled. And that was at the cross of Calvary, where God's justice was perfectly administered and his mercy was publicly displayed. When God took upon himself the punishment meant for the guilty, meant for us, for me, so that sinful, guilty human beings could be reconciled to him without one ounce of guilt being swept under the rug or one bit of justice unserved or one drop of Christ's precious mercy wasted, all because of what Jesus endured for us to fulfill the toughness of God's love, the tenderness of his justice, and so that we can, with David today, tell what God has brought about so we can ponder what he's done and then let the righteous ones rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him and let all of the upright in heart exalt. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.